Thank you so much for tuning in to the Attack and Release show. My name's Sam Mose. I'm with my good friend, Matt Garber. Hello. And today we're doing a new type of episode that we've never done before. And it's question and answer episode. So we've been uh, asking our audience via Instagram mainly uh, for some questions that you would like us to answer. Uh, it'd be two, two men's opinions on these questions. So not at all the end all be all, but uh, they are our opinions. And Matt has a timer for each question to keep us uh, on the clock here so we don't, um, mainly more so for me, so I don't monologue forever. <laughs> Um, as I do. And uh, we have seven questions we're going to try to get through in the next hour, ranging from mastering stuff to uh, lifestyle business approach. And I'm excited about this one. So, Matt, are you ready for me to tee you up for question one? I'm ready. And are we each going to uh, give our own answer? Or maybe we just we just dialogue, not monologue, dialogue. Let's dialogue instead of monologue. Isn't like die like two? I think die, like di, yes, die too. Okay, cool. As opposed to mono, <laughs> exactly. So we'll just like shoot off. I have seven minutes and forty-five seconds allotted for each uh, question. Love it. Or our opinions on that. Wonderful. So ready, set, go. Here's the question, Matt. Coloring and mastering, solid state versus tube versus analog and harmonic distortion. Opinion. Go. I like it. Next question. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I absolutely like it. I don't think it is for everything. Some stuff does not need to come out of the box. Um, I'm assuming we're talking about hopping out of the box. I mean, you can get uh, you can get different colors in the box. Um, I feel like with emulations, I'm getting so nervous with this timer. <laughs> I'm just turning my phone upside down. And I'll just let you know when I have like a dinging in my ears. Um, I feel like the one thing that emulations miss is like a sense of depth, which is really everything. Like whenever you hear a song, and you're like, man, it just feels like the band is standing right in front of me. That's probably some like tube gear. Like with a little bit of a midfield bloom, like pushing some stuff forward, or you get a little bit, bit of that like transformer vibe and action happening. As for like, as for solid state, I mean, I absolutely, I absolutely love it. Um, I mean, on this Maslick EQ I have, it just like it looks daunting, but if you literally just think of it, like I want this forward. You're just like, okay, cool. I'm going to dial this and then this cue and then this is going to go forward like this. And so like as far as like solid state stuff goes, I mean, I I couldn't be any happier. I mean, right above it on in my chain, I have uh, the MPL2, the peak and high frequency limiter. Mm -hmm. And even though it is a solid state piece of analog gear, it's like for like the DSing function, it's literally the most analog sounding DSer I've ever heard. Yeah. So, as far as tube gear goes, I mean, if you ever need to like add beef or like if you just need to make something sound like more of a record or more alive or something like that, I mean, I couldn't think of a better like of anything to use. As far as harmonic distortion, um, 
Are we saying like harmonic enhancement also being distortion? Yeah, sure. I mean, if I do anything as far as like playing with harmonics, it's normally on the that uh, Oxford inflator. Yeah. I mean, that's the go-to. I think it's like the best sounding inflator, like I'm air quoting right now. <laughs> it's like the best sounding one of those. I mean, I love the red silk on the Neve. It's pretty nice and vibey. Um, I was recently talking with a friend and I said, if you're just getting into mastering and you need like a cheap and dirty master, just throw that sucker on. And the red silk just makes everything sound better and brighter. And if like you want the cheap master with like the bright top, then go ahead and just like click that red button and then dial in the texture. Um, and then as you go on in your mastering career, you'll kind of sway away from that. I don't think I've turned that light on in, in quite some time, but... I mean, it's fun for a little bit of that harmonic distortion. So, Sam, you're up. Wonderful. Well, I think we all know I'm a big fan of color in mastering. That's a lot of what I do. Um, tube versus solid state. I mean, tubes basically, the main difference is that you are amplifying a signal either via a tube or if you're using solid state, you're amplifying a signal via the transistor usually. <clears throat> Um, so those have different sounds. Um, for me, I like to use tubes because I think they are very um, exciting. They bring density and depth. They have a very analog sound to me that people describe, um, like rich fatness, roundness. Um, so I'm a big fan of tubes. I have Massive Passive. I have Tube Techs. Uh, Poltex, I have um, old different vintage tube stuff, um, but I also have a good amount of solid state stuff. Um, so I would say that it's all dependent on the content of the song and what it needs. Um, some stuff needs more coloring. Um, I think when people talk about coloring, they're talking about um, density usually or making it sound not as sterile. Um, but harmonic distortion, to me, is a byproduct of both. Um, you get mm -hmm. harmonic distortion via tubes and solid state, usually. Um, tubes, to me, I don't know, the distortion is a little more pleasing. Um, a solid state, to me, gets more kind of your typical like classic guitar fuzzy sound, crunch. Um, and they kind of solid state to me is more like second, third order. Um, but so is also like tubes can float around there. So it's just dependent to me. Tubes are a little more tasteful and musical where solid state is a little more aggressive. That's how I'd probably describe it. So depending on what the song needs, um, tubes can be a great way to kind of smooth things over where solid state can bring some aggression and punch, um, and coloring if your song feels kind of floppy or all over the place. So yeah, that's super it. super fast. Woo! Okay, I'm done with that. Let's move on. What did we have? I want to see the timer. Hold on, <laughs> hold on, hold on. We had one minute and 51 seconds remaining. All Heck right. yeah. Cancel, then we're going to restart. All right, I'm going to cue you up for this one because okay. you're pretty much the master when it comes to this realm. The master. Automation in mastering. Oh, fun. Okay, Automation mastering. I do it. I've been doing it since I started mastering. I started doing it in mastering because I started as a mixer 
And to me, good mixing is all about automating and balance, of course. Um, if you're not automating your mixes, you're not mixing, hence the name mixing. Um, I automate in mastering via logic. Um, I will automate things into gear differently at different times to create different colors. Hello, circle back to the first question. Um, <laughs> to make the tubes or things bloom different, distort better, hit limiters differently, compressors differently, I will automate sections, um, usually going out of the box. And then once it comes back in, I will sometimes automate in the box um, if I need to give something a lift somewhere, um, meaning like the song just is totally smashed and it needs to move, um, I will do what a mixer does, which is like I will make the first verse 0.25 dB softer than the chorus, one, um, in order to make it feel like it's moving while also still being super loud. So not a lot of people automate at mastering. They think it's... Um, against the rules. Um, I do know some guys automate the actual hardware gear sometimes. They'll turn knobs on hardware. I find that to be risky. Um, I find analog gear not to be that fast in changing settings, so I don't enjoy doing that. Uh, it's hard to do recall because you're 99% sure you will not turn the knobs at the same time again if you ever have to do a recall or revision. Um, but I love automation. I think it helps the masters move. I think in a time where loudness is key, um, instead of everything sounding completely smashed and the same level the whole time, which there's nothing wrong with that, you can still introduce a little bit of movement to make our brains kind of go, oh, cool, chorus is here. This is the chorus. This is the bridge. This is a verse. Subtle changes um, and volume changes are super important, and uh, I bring that to the master stage. So automation, all for it. Um, I don't always do it, but I do it a lot. So there we go. Matt, automation, thoughts? I will automate a little, not normally, not normally a terrible amount. Um, if you're changing from, I mean, recently had this kind of rock song where it went uh, pretty darn heavy, and then it went into this like really dynamic part where the vocal got a little harsh. And so it's like I automated, say, like Soothe on. Um, <clears throat> I'll also play with that like Weiss de uh -huh. And it's like if you have like a part of a song change um, in tempo, in terms of intensity, whatever, um, and something needs to be clamped down on a little bit more, uh, I'll automate thresholds down and, and whatnot. So I'm definitely, I'm definitely down for that. Where I do it most is um, I don't know why in mastering, and it's like, I don't know if you do this, Sam, so <laughs> sorry <laughs> if you do. It's just, I just don't get it. Um, I don't know why people automate like the fader itself um, as far as like output level, especially on like a printed master. If I do it um, and like I'm bringing up the level, it'll normally be the level of a limiter. Mm -hmm. And it's like I know what the client sees as far as like where the level is on the meter is not going to change. And I feel like I'm in way more control than if I were just to like change what the meter is saying. Right. Um, or at least like like moving the fader up and down. Yeah. So if I do anything, it's like, okay, this needs to go a little bit heavier here. So I'll just like, okay, maybe 0.3 or maybe 0.5. 
um, if it's obnoxious and we can do like a little bit of a build or something like that. So that's where I use it. I'm normally also one of those people who will automate their gear. <gasps> Gasps. <laughs> <laughs> I just flailed my arms in case there's a soundbite for that. Um, you have to be very careful because some gear can be noisy when the pots click. Yes. Especially with mastering gear because you used stepped pots as opposed to swept pots. If I do automate anything, uh, in the begin when I started, uh, when I got my MPL2, I would automate that high frequency uh, limiter threshold a little bit. Uh, I don't really do that as much. Um, so I've kind of been catering to like the need, like if I do automate something, what am I going to automate? And it's only certain things I automate. And it's like I'll look at like a meter with like the headroom that like I have. And it's like say I have 120 dB of headroom. As I switch this in, you're going to see that needle bump and you're going to see that switch like turn on and then you can see it turn off. And so you can see like what noise you're going to be interjecting into the signal by doing that. Um, there have been some things like the massive passive for the mastering version, I guess the non-mastering version too, you can get away with it because the only st actual steps in it are the frequency pots mm -hmm. and then... Um, the uh, the Q and the gain on it actually run on a because like it's a passive equalizer. Uh, it's a little more difficult to do like a passive stepped EQ. So they actually have ball bearings on the bottom side of the pots that act as steps for recall. So that's kind of nice. And so I'll do that. And it's like if I want to take something from like a bell to like okay now we're gonna go crazy and we're gonna like boost it one click and we're going to also slam down and like our finger and turn it from a, a bell to a shelf and stuff like that. And it's like at like a crazy part. It's like you can do that. Um, as for recall goes, you got to take really good notes. So I've been buying my gear with that in mind. Also the, uh, the foot, con foot control systems compressor I have the only stepped knobs are the threshold ratio and gain, and the attack and release are actually swept. And so it's like if I need to vary something, as, like I don't compress a lot, but if I do, and I do need to automate something, I know that, okay, well, I can keep my threshold and ratio and everything the same, but I can control every parameter of it with the attack and release. Mm -hmm. So and those are completely silent because they are swept pots. So those are really if I do automate, it'll be like the like I said, the limiter on like the Pro L2 or whatever limiter I'm using, and then occasionally I'll do something in the box. But it's one of those things like you got to be certain you're not going to get any revisions, um, which I don't know if anyone can be that certain, or um, you just have to take insanely good notes. Yeah. So, oh look, one second and we're done. Perfect. So, cancel that alarm. I got it, Siri. I got it. <laughs> yep, 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 but I want to set another one. You're wasting my time, Siri. All right. Let's see. Yeah, I'll let, I'll let you set me up on this next one or I don't know, I or I can take the reins. I don't know. Do you have the list in front of you? I have the list. Do you want me to ask you the next question? I don't care. 
Next question, Matt. Setting final level first slash monoing base. This would mean to me, do you, when you start your mastering process, get it up to level? Meaning like you might be taking like a DB off on a limiter just to get it up in volume to see what you need to do. That's part one of the question. Part two is monoing base. Do you mono out your base? Um, (laughs) Because some people think that helps solidify the image or whatever. So everybody has a thought on that. So Matt, yes, there you go. Twofold question. Setting final level first. Uh, I've played with it. I get in trouble with it. And uh, in all honesty, I never really know how loud I want to go with something. And well, I don't know. I kind of view this whole thing as like a dance. Like my wife can probably let every single listener know that I am not a good dancer, but um, I view this as a dance and the song is leading the way. And so you just kind of follow where it wants to go. And that's really how I master. And it's like, okay, we're going to do this here and we're going to do this here. And then this is where the song's leading. And yeah, so I, I really don't look at the final level first. But because of this question... <laughs> I might start. Oh. So we'll see. We'll see what kind of trouble I get into. Um, so these two questions, I think I, I don't know if I said this. These two questions came from the same person. Ah. So that's why these are these are together. As far as monoing the bass, um, this is a very genre and distribution specific question. Um, you typically do not need to mono the bass. I mean, if if something is really obnoxious, like you will know, it's like like listen to the sides. If the sides have like a bunch of infrasonic junk at like like the lower ends of everything, you should probably play and just be like, "Okay, well, let's see if we mono this or essentially just shelve or cut the sides down low and you can essentially see like if if something needs to happen. Um, but I feel like it's very genre specific in the electronic genre. It's like, it's very, very forward. But like, if there's like a, like a drop or something like that to where it's like an all encompassing bass is like surrounding everything and it's meant to be there, then you have to be like, you almost have to automate in that regard because you want that punchy kick. And so I don't know, but it's like, if you're doing something with country and you have a lot of low end on the sides, that's probably not genre specific. Where I said, and I'm going to look at the clock, I have four minutes and 45 seconds. So here's where it becomes distribution specific. If you're going, um, how do I want to say this? If you're doing one run and you're not making like a separate master for vinyl, which you can if you want, um, but if you do not want to, Vinyl does not like a lot of low end on the sides. If any, they typically will they will typically cut it or shelve it. Um, I've seen places recommend up to 150 um, hertz that it be cut. So it just doesn't it just doesn't cut well. You'll swing the um, you'll swing the cutter head and the groove, and you'll swing a groove into another groove. And I've heard of cases to where you'll have like a ghost groove to where you can actually hear the low end of the next groove and the groove like that is before it. So it's uh, 
yeah, it can get kind of messy upon replay. So um, distribution specific right there. And then uh, as far as like genre, that's where I'll do that. So Sam, setting the final level le- setting the final level first and monoing the base. Where are you at? Setting the final level first. That's almost a tongue twister um, for me. I do not set the final level first. Um, I actually, the first thing I do is reduce the level <laughs> heavily, like 20 dB, before I hit analog gear because I like to rebuild the volume via gear because of the way it sounds. See question one, color. <laughs> um <laughs> So I don't set the final level until we are at the uh honestly I don't I don't set it until I'm basically done and like you I don't really I don't really watch my meters anymore um outside of if we're trying to compete with something or there's a very specific reference that I know I need to get to I'll look at where we're at dynamic range first of the mix and then I'll figure out where it needs to go. So that'll determine signal chain and stuff. But I do not like pushing into a limiter um, at all. I think if I want to hear what it sounds like loud, I just turn up my monitor to hear what it sounds like loud. I don't throw a limiter on first to bring up the volume. That's what I think a lot of guys do, and their explanation is that. They're like, we just want to see if it even needs anything, so you throw a limiter on it, but a limiter is the most aggressively w- aggressive thing to change. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. if you want to change a song, put a limiter on it. It will rip information out of the whole song. Um, so I'd rather just turn my volume knob up to hear it loud to see if it needs anything. So, um, so yeah, I don't do that. That's just not how I like to work. Um, as far as monoing the bass, you pretty much nailed it to me. I used to do more monoing a bass to solidify or like kind of mid side work in my early days. Because um, a couple of the guys I watched used to do that and clean out the sides to make room for stuff um, or monoing the bass. There's multiple ways to do it. But um, I've, I've found, gotten in yeah. trouble for monoing the bass on a non like genre appropriate yeah. song. Yeah, so I just I just play to that. Yeah. I don't really enjoy it anymore. I haven't done it outside of if we're doing a vinyl thing or something specific, but most um most of the time what I get the low end is pretty monoed anyway. I think most samples, most synths, most of what's coming out now is pretty like things people use producers use. The sourcing's pretty solid. Um, so I don't really worry about that. I don't really worry much about mono translation anymore. Once the iPhone started putting out stereo speakers, even though it's not like really, I mean, it's stereo, but it's not like headphone stereo. Um, I really stopped caring about mono capability. Now there's, there's a, we could talk about the benefits of having a great mono center balance in general. Um, and how that then makes the stereo image even better. But that's a whole other podcast we should do. So, um, yeah, that's my answer. I don't need to say anything more. Well, good. Ha! Your time is up. Woohoo! 
Right on the money. Heck yeah. All right, so I'm going to tee you up for this one because I don't quite understand what this guy's asking. Okay. <laughs> but you in pre-pro said that you do understand what he's asking. So I'm going to start the clock and answer the question that is very broad called accountability in work. Yes, this was a question um, that was asked. wanted to know more about accountability the general idea of accountability and how it relates to uh, music mastering business relationships. So for me, accountability, um, I, have a, I have a strange view of accountability. I basically have accountability with myself because um, over the last five years, I've really learned that in order for me to uh, be the best human, I have to take care of myself first. Um, so I have a, you could call it selfish uh a selfishness that I keep myself accountable strictly because there are things I want to do in life, relationships I want to have in life that require me to do certain things. Um, so the accountability I have with my work and uh, with my friends or relationship or my wife really is just between me and the thing. Um, and it's mainly because I want to have a mastering studio like I have in have a full commercial studio and I want to have a good marriage with my wife and I want to be healthy and all these things that I want usually start with me um, taking care of myself, being disciplined, you know, that goes into accountability. I do not have any sort of accountability partner. Um, I have like some mentors in town, but they don't like check in on me. We just have meetings like once a month on the phone or I see them in person. Um, so accountability to me, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's that important. I think people people do what they want to do. I think people really have to figure out and decide what they want to do for themselves. Uh, as I get older, I don't really believe I can change many people. Um, and that's not a, depre- a depressing statement. It's just people do what they want. Um, and the things that really stick are when people discover it for themselves. So my view of accountability has changed so much where I used to think it was super important to keep people accountable. Now my view is uh, I don't feel like I'm responsible for anybody's happiness, anybody's success. I think that's everybody's job. Once you become an adult, that's your responsibility, not mine. So if you'd like my help, I can do that, but I can't want the thing more than you want it. I can't um, force you to be more disciplined. Once you become an adult... It's just not my job anymore, not my role. So I think the accountability is on you. I think you need to be accountable to yourself because you owe it to yourself um, to be accountable to the things you're committing to, the things that you want to do. Um, And when you take that responsibility of accountability for yourself and you don't allow anyone else to make that their responsibility, it's the most empowering, freeing thing you can ever experience in your life to know that you're the one doing the work, putting in the the time and um, the reward of just doing things, the process um, becomes just the ultimate gift. So I'm going to cut off there, but that is my super quick view of accountability. Matt, do you have any thoughts on accountability? I mean... <clears throat> Well, is it like I wanted to at least hold myself accountable? I mean, I can only really talk about myself. Is mm-hmm. um, 2020, I really wanted it to be the year of 
uh, margin and me saying no and welcome coronavirus to the <laughs> <laughs> to the stage. And it seems to be doing a lot of the social distancing for me. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> it's not really a joking matter, but I mean, it definitely is ironic in in terms of like, I mean, there's like a lot of stuff. I mean, you like it's it's just kind of like odd how a lot of stuff's falling into place. I mean, my other business we were talking about uh, in 2019, we're not going to bring out any new products in 2020. We're going to take a step back. We're going to focus on the 182 products that we currently offer. Do we actually need all of these? Is there a way to trim any? Is there any fat that we should be trimming? Uh, how do we focus on our sales force? How do we focus on supporting them? And um, really just like reinforcing everything that we can do just to make like this like a robust um, entrance into like 2021. We were like, okay, fall 2020, we're going to. Uh, design some products, and we're gonna really hone in on our um, on our production process. And <clears throat> um, now we have all the time in the world to figure that out. So um, it's just kind of interesting how like certain things are um, working out as far as like accountability is concerned. I mean. Um, I could do better at waking up early, but I mean, no one likes to wake <laughs> up early. I mean, unless you're an or at like a morning person, um, which you people are sick. <laughs> but I mean, as far as staying staying accountable, just I don't know. It, for some reason, it's just common sense to me. It's like just do the freaking work. Like I don't, I don't understand what the complaining is. My good friend in high school, I have two minutes left. Uh, his. Uh, his name is Tom Lembecker. He's a uh, very, very German. Uh, I met his grandfather. Pronounced his name like Lembecker. You know, like, oh, okay, <laughs> like very, like all in the throat. And uh, he just put something to me very simply, uh, very early on in my life. And I think I was complaining about something, and whether I wanted to do it or not. And Tom, in his very German ways, just said. I don't really understand what the point is. If you want to do it, just do it. If you don't want to do it, then don't do it. Just quit your bitching. <laughs> He's like, just pick one. And so, I mean, that that's the view I have as far as accountability. Is like, if you want to do something, then sign up and do it, and then just follow through. And it's like, I want to be a mastering engineer, so I'm going to wake up, and I don't have the time during the day, so I'm going to wake up early, I'm going to be a mastering engineer. And if I don't want to be a mastering engineer, then I'm not going to do that. But stop wasting everyone's time if you're not going to do that. And so it just, for me, it's just kind of stupid, very cut and dry. And that's my accountability is I want to be a dad. I want to be a husband. I'm going to be very present. And I am like, I'm going to make sure that my wife knows that she is safe, loved, and provided for. And I'm going to make sure that my kid knows that his dad absolutely loves him and will provide for him and take care of him. And, uh, well, he does know that he'll discipline him too. So there's accountability there too. I mean, as a parent, shit, like, I think there is an accountability in, like, disciplining your kids. There's a saying that if you don't discipline your kids when they're young, society will discipline them when they're old. So, um, yeah, it's like if you just let your kids run amok. So, I mean, that's accountability. So, I don't know. We can get the the dog dad to weigh in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do you discipline Biggie? Yes, I do. My alarm, 
My alarm is going off. I disappointed. Can you hear my alarm or is it just in my ears? I can't hear it, no. Oh, it's just in my ears. Um, so that's my accountability, but I, I mean, I can probably went completely off the rails. So, Sam, question five. Woo! How do you deal with difficult clients? Excellent. Difficult clients. There's a number of way to deal number of ways to deal with them. Um, usually I found that when a client becomes difficult, it's because I didn't get clear expectations. Um, that's when the difficulty starts. Um, there's usually poor communication. There were expectations not uh, made clear from the start of the project. Part of that falls on me for not investigating enough. Part of it falls on the client for not explaining and giving me everything I need to uh, be equipped to actually give them the end product. Um, so that's one of the ways you can have a difficult client. How I deal with them is by asking for more information. Uh, I use the phrasing, help me understand. That phrase to me has changed my life. I started using it like four or five years ago. I think I listen to it on a random... You're going to say four or five times a day. <laughs> four, well, I probably do <laughs> say it four or five times a day to people. Um, but that phrase, help me understand, just shows that you want them to teach you and you are willing to be taught um, that you can learn something from them about what you can do to move the project forward. Um, it's also a great phrase to use with your significant other. If you are in a fight and don't understand something, tell them to help you understand what they are saying. So y'all taking notes at home? Yeah, I got I got a pen out. I don't know if you could hear that yeah. paper a couple of minutes ago. I got that paper out. Um, so that's a phrase that I use with difficult clients. Um, the other uh, kind of mantra I have in my life with difficult clients or conversations is I always ask myself, "Is there any truth in this statement that's being said to me?" So. Sometimes um, I will get feedback where my ego will immediately be like, oh, this is stupid, 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 they're wrong, they're wrong. And I immediately have to squash that and go, is there any truth in what they're saying? Because sometimes there is truth in there, we're just communicating poorly or we've, we have two different um, ways we define things. So there really, to me, are no difficult clients. Um, there's just bad communication. So... Until you become a great communicator, which is where experience helps with that, um, you will have difficult clients. Um, you also always have the choice to get rid of difficult clients. Sometimes um, there are very few situations like this in my last 10 years, but there are people that I have said, thanks for letting me work on this project, but you know, I don't think I was the best fit. And you know, I basically don't want to do anything else with you. So... Um, that's said in a much nicer way, but you are allowed to um, not work with clients again if it was very difficult um, or if it wasn't a good fit. But I've found almost all my difficult clients have come from a lack of communication, poor expectation setting, and my ego getting in the way. So that's what I will say on that. Matt, difficult clients. Um. It, it's pretty much just a recap of what you said. We are in a communications-based industry, and your communication and their communication has to be top-notch. And if theirs is not top-notch, that means yours has to be even uh, more honed. And uh, your ability to understand what it means when someone says, 
something is muddy, something sounds scooped, this is bright, bright this is harsh, um, uh, this is too tubby. Um, that right there is uh, like, that right there is key. And that right there is like, like you knowing, uh, I mean, that, that, <laughs> that can take a very simple somebody's interpretation of an event and turn it into a very complicated conversation if you two are not on the same wavelength. So if somebody says, this is sounding tubby or this is sounding... I don't know. Let's say let's say this is sounding harsh. It's like I will go back to them and say, "Okay, um, if there's if there's if there's ever been any communication, I'll or uh, that's not what I want to say. If there's any been any lapse in communication, that's what I'm looking for. Um, I'll normally go back and I'll be like, "Okay, so just to be clear, this is the area that we're talking about, like specifically on the symbols, specific or like are we talking like vocal range?" Symbols, guitar, like what actually is harsh? So, and I mean, typically it's pretty blaring unless, I mean, unless it's everything. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, so it's a communication-based industry and expectations uh, must be vocalized as they are everything. And if someone does not adequately express their expectations, then you are in for a world of hurt. <laughs> Either that or like you kind of have to be a little bit of a mind reader. It's like I know like after a while you hear a song and you're like, okay, well, shoot, I already know. I, I know where this is going. And then you work on it and it sounds good and then you're like, whoa, this is in a completely different direction than I originally thought. Um, so that's how I deal with different difficult clients is you have to manage communication and you have to manage expectations. Um I'm going to start to use that help me understand line. Mm -hmm. I definitely wrote that down. Not necessarily for the relationship <laughs> part, say, but the uh, the the client relationship. Mm -hmm. So luckily I don't have too many bad clients. I've only had to, I think maybe two or three. I've had to, been like, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think this is a good fit. And then, I mean, shit, it never works out. Right. <laughs> it's like, they're like, oh, man, come on. And so it's like, oh, okay. And so I end, I, I end up folding on what I said in the beginning. So I'm a big softy. So then I get myself into a situation. <laughs> That's how I deal with difficult clients. This is like, I'm going to go get that, like, therapist couch. <laughs> that Sigmund Freud couch, whatever it is. And you're like, all right, let me let me tell you about... How I have a hard time dealing with difficult clients, and I always just end up doing it anyway. So, mm -hmm. but I've said this in previous episodes as well. A very healthy metric is you have to ask yourself uh, the phrase: uh, "Is this money? Uh, is this money going to cost me too much?" Yeah, because some money just costs too much. Yep. So that's that. With thirty-six seconds left on the clock. Oh yeah. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> as far as question six is concerned, Samuel Moses. <sighs> Matt Gerber. What's your middle name? James. Didn't know that. Samuel, Samuel James. James Moses. Strong. As far as staying the course goes, yes. what do you do 
to make sure you stay the course. I guess this is like, this butts right up to accountability. Yeah, it does. Dang. What? Um, staying the course for me is all about my routine. Uh, having mm-hmm. a routine helps me stay the course. Within that roti- routine is uh, journaling time. During my journaling time, um, I write down my gratitudes, my affirmations, and my daily prompts of what I'm going to do for the day. Um, Staying the course is, for me, all about being in the present moment. It's all about reciting that there is no urgency, only one thing at a time. Um, I ask myself, do I know what I need to do today? The answer is usually yes. And so I go do that thing. Um, And then also, probably the biggest thing is seeing that this moment is not all moments. So that allows me to have a super long-term view of life in general um, and my career that this current moment, whatever I'm going through, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not so great. Um, That that moment, whether good or bad, is not all moments in life. So that helps me give... Uh, get a lot of perspective of staying the course. If I'm ever in the middle of something that I'm like, man, this sucks, or like the time we're recording this vi- or <laughs> recording this episode right now, we're probably at like the middle point of the virus thing. I bet that's just my guess. I don't know. I'm not an expert at all. Um, but we've been in it for a few weeks, maybe a month. Um, lockdown. And uh, I just keep reminding myself that this moment's not all moments. Uh, I have done nothing differently uh, with my business um, during this time, I've continued to um, stay the course by seeing that I know most likely if the history of mankind has shown us anything with this virus right now, um, six months from now, it'll be done. A year from now, we'll know so much about it, know how to treat it, contain it. Two years from now, probably have another virus. (laughs) Like, I don't know. But Staying the course for me looks a lot like having a huge long-term view of life and of the history of mankind and what we've seen from that. Um, and that helps me stay the course every day. And then I don't know how better to explain it, but if you just do the things you need to do for today and be present, the long-term goals just always seem to take care of themselves. Um, there's a lot that goes into that statement, but... Um, I found once I stopped focusing on the the what ifs, the anxieties of the future, you know, how am I going to get there and started just focusing on what can I do today? What do I want to do today? That'll move me closer um, to, I guess, the end goal, whatever that is. Um, then, uh, you know, I was able to stay the course. So that's kind of how I do it. I have a few mantras I recite, like I said, um, and then my routine every day is what helps me stay the course. And then I have a, a few good friends and a, an amazing wife that remind me of those things when I forget them because we're all forgetful people and uh, it's very normal to forget things, very normal to um, get discouraged. Sometimes I don't want to do my routine and uh, you know, I have my wife, she'll remind me how much I enjoyed after I'm done with it. So we all need a little help here and there. That's kind of accountability. So that's my view on how to stay the course. Matt, go. 
Mine is very much like yours, very routine-based, and that's about it. I'm definitely admittedly not as uh, honed in on my routine as you are on yours. Um, but I, I feel like where where I get off of my routine is when I have a lapse in work mm-hmm. and waking up at 5.30 in the morning really loses its appeal <laughs> because I don't need to. Mm-hmm. But I can always... Uh, but I can always go in, I can always pull a piece of gear, I can always calibrate something, I can always uh, I can always work on something, I can modify a template to something that I keep on changing every time I open a template but don't have time to modify it. And um, I could look at marketing plans, I could do invoicing, I, I, I could do all this stuff. But having a little bit of a lapse of work definitely... Uh, it definitely kills the appeal of waking up at five thirty in the morning to go, um, to go in. So that that's really the only time that like I kind of like lose my routine. Um, I really haven't lost much because of the whole coronavirus thing. I mean, if I'm down, I mean maybe twenty percent. So not a not a not a hefty hit. So I mean, luckily. I, I have a theory, but luckily mastering is pretty close. To, it is the end of the chain as far as stuff is going. So like any producer, mix engineer, whatnot, they're still working on stuff and they're sending it to us. Um, my prediction is that we may have a lull once everything gets back going Yeah, and uh, waiting for everything to get back to us. But I don't think it'll be that big of a lull at all. So... But yeah, I've been I've definitely been pretty blessed as far as like staying the course and like staying motivated. Um, I just like listening to sweet music. <laughs> I feel like a mastering engineer is just like a really asshole of an audiophile, <laughs> like like an audiophile who'd be like, I'd listen to it this way, and then they make that adjustment, <laughs> they send it back. So it's like I don't know. I really I really like music, and so that that really helps me. Stay the course. I, li- I also like solving problems for people. Um, I like being that solution provider, um, and I like making people happy. So that's uh, I think that's how I stay the course with with fifty six seconds remaining. Heck yeah! So okay, last question, and then we'll wrap. Mm-hmm. Man, we're doing really good. Like I got this like seven <laughs> minutes and forty five seconds. Thank I you for dialed doing it down. We have four minutes until we have, or we have six minutes until we have to end this. We're doing good. All right. So, ready for the last question? I'm ready. Question number seven, Sam. Yep. It's a happy question. Woo! What's your favorite part of the process? Excellent question. Also, I want to give a disclaimer at the end of the episode that I have allergies currently. So, if you've heard me sniffling <laughs> in this episode, I'm not crying yet. I just have allergies. Um, But to get back to the question, favorite part of the process, there are a lot of things that are my favorites part of the process, which is why I master. One of them has to be getting to listen to unreleased music way ahead of people and just the amount of cool music I get to hear um, is one of my favorite parts. 
being a mastering engineer, we probably have the most clients of anyone. We probably listen to the most, I know we listen to the most music than anyone else at any stage, I'm pretty sure. So with that, I get to hear so much cool music. Um, and that's one of my favorite parts. Uh, second favorite part is probably just relationship building. Um, I know so much about my clients um, just because music is so intertwined with personal life and emotions. And um, I get to hear a lot about how the process has been up until mastering. So there's a lot of emotion usually in that and plans and hopes and dreams. So I get to help people navigate that um, and get re-excited for their music, which leads me to my third thing, which is, I mean, I'm an affirmation person, so um, that's my love language, affirmation, um, which I'm learning to not need that to be happy from other people, something I'm working on. But when someone responds that, their music sounds better than they ever thought it could or that you've brought life back to it or you make them re-love their song after they've been beating it up for months, recording it, mixing it. Even if everybody did a great job, people get sick of their song and for them to give a feedback that they feel like it's a new song or it's really, you know, it's finally done and that they're at peace about it and they're excited and proud of it. Um, that for me is always one of the best parts about the process. When people tell me that they did not know their song could sound that good or that they never believed that they could achieve such quality. Um, and this isn't like a, a toot my own horn. So many people do great job, do great jobs with music um, and mastering too. But that's one of my favorite parts is just seeing people basically have that spark reignited um, and they fall in love with music again and fall in love with their song again or their EP or their album that they've spent so much time and money on. And I get to play a very significant but small part um, in that. And uh, it's just a gift. It's a gift to be able to work on music. It's a gift to hear music. It's a gift to partner with people and help them get their song across the finish line and out into the world. So... Those are my favorite parts of the process. Um, there's other things I like, but those are the main overview things. So, Matt, handing it off to you. So, words of affirmation for giving or receiving? Receiving. 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 How do you show love? It depends on the person. It's probably smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably wouldn't. I probably would not show love to my wife the same way I would show it to you. Correct. <laughs> Which would probably be appreciated. <laughs> yes. Uh, what is mine? I think mine is acts of service as far as uh, doing. Yeah. I don't know what it is receiving. It might be. I don't think it's acts of service. Maybe. Maybe both ways. Um, so, favorite part of the process. I could probably turn my timer off. <laughs> um, mine is definitely the hearing of unreleased music. And it's like you have a band that everyone in town absolutely loves. And they've trusted you with taking it across the finish line. I think that's my favorite part. Mm -hmm. 
is being able to help somebody uh, achieve the vision that they're after and to make sure it's going to be heard by everyone as uh, abundantly and as clearly as as possible. I think, I, I mean, I mean, that's my goal is that just people fall in love with their music that they just slaved for like, it could be even years over. Um, so getting the, getting the chance and kind of getting the honor to, uh, to deliver that is really nice. Um, yeah, just that, that, that to me is just like an absolute honor. I really like, uh, I mean, one of, one of my, one of my goals for this year, which will definitely have to be pushed off until a bit later this year, at least later than April when we're recording this is, uh, uh, since I've been like getting better at my turnaround time, I've been getting better at, um, just like delivering like higher and higher and higher quality masters for people that just like blow them away, which not me toot my own horn. Just, I mean, I can also be proud of the work that I do. <laughs> so, um, like one of my things I've been, uh, that I had on my marketing plan or business plan for this year was to expand my current client roster because I'm at a point to where I can take on more clients and I feel like I can serve them as well as uh, my current client roster. So um, I like doing that too, just reaching out to people, seeing where they're at and going to, like I'll go to their studio or go like, we'll go hang out or go grab a drink and just talk shop and talk life and just, uh, um I don't. I don't really end stuff at at business. I mean, Sam, you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy investing in two people, and I enjoy getting to know them and uh, doing life with people. So, I. I mean, which is a lot said from an introvert, but um, yeah, I, I. I really enjoy that. I. I, I enjoy uh, meeting people I work with, hanging out with the artists, and. Um, I mean, given the opportunity, going to shows and supporting them and whatnot. But I mean, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's my I think that's my favorite part of the whole process. So awesome! And look at that, right on time. We did it! Right, right. About thirty six seconds left. The timer method worked great. It's kind this of fun. This may not be the last time we <laughs> see you, old timer friend. So, anywho. I imagine at this point, Sam has a sweet beat queued up from BizaBeats.com. Oh, yeah. If you like this beat or any of the previous... I think I scheduled up this episode. What episode will this be? Uh, this episode will be episode number. I think it's 66. Holy crap. Woo! Yeah. So if you like this or the previous 65 beats that you've heard, and Sam has not repeated the same one twice. Have not. Which is pretty incredible. Um... Go check out BeesBeats.com and go uh, buy one of his beats. They're pretty sweet. Sweet beats. Sweet beats. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you would like any merch, I really have not looked in this closet. I was listening to like two of our earlier podcasts just like uh, for quality control. And I, <laughs> I keep on saying I'm going to look and see how much merch we have. I haven't looked, but I know it's still there. Um, I think we have... Uh, I think resting glasses right now are on like made to order. So there might be a little like a day delay. Yeah. But they're handmade. So uh, I mean, they, I, I can personally attest to their ability to hold many liquids of <laughs> <laughs> vast color and alcoholic or non alcoholic nature. It's, it's really the, 
truly the epitome of the drinking vessel right there. So <laughs> that or a mug or, you know, a pair of socks as we enter into the warmer. <laughs> warmer season. You need long socks. The warmer times of the year. So anywho, uh, appreciate y'all listening. We're... Uh, uh, we have, I think, like around like 108,000 downloads. So I feel completely unworthy <laughs> of all of that. So, uh, yeah, just thank you for who you are. Thank you for, for tuning in. If you like what we said, uh, give us some likes, some stars, some comments, wherever you're at. Please uh, share with friends. Uh, this podcast has really just grown by word of mouth, and we couldn't be more thankful. So with that said, morning, afternoon, evening, whatever you're having, Have a darn good one. Sam? Matt? Cue the music, please. Cueing! See y'all. Thank you. 